welcome back to another episode of Rael Talk, where I sit down and deep dive with friends, colleagues, and experts to inquire about meditation and mindfulness and meaningful connection. I'm your host, Britta Rael, and on today's show, I have the privilege of speaking with dear friend and mentor to me, Mark Carter. Uh, Mark co-owns and operates Zen Soul Balance, a holistic wellness company based in San Diego, specializing in yoga, sound therapy, mindfulness, and meditation. He holds dual graduate degrees in education and spirituality, has several certifications in yoga and sound healing therapy. Mark has completed postgrad work in the disciplines of spiritual formation and leadership, and has been a retreat leader for over 15 years. As an artist and a yogi, his interests focus on the intersection of meditation, asana, and sound therapy as a catalyst to inspire others to embrace the unity of body, mind, and spirit and lead a bit more of a healthy and balanced life. Good morning, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and just for being willing to sit down and dive into, I think, some pretty beautiful and heady and and heavy and wonderful topics uh, today. Mm, Good morning, Britta. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. So uh, yeah, I enjoy our conversations and um, looking forward to diving in as well. Now, we have known each other. We were just discussing this. since 2008 um, in the context of Point Loma Nazarene University, which is where I was a student. And at that time you had come in as the chaplain. Um, So for anyone that doesn't know Point Loma, maybe you can give a little background to your role there and like context for how we met. Um, And then we can kind of dive into version one and version two of how we met. (laughs) Exactly. Kind of two different, um, two different lifetimes where we reconnected. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so Point Loma Nazarene University is um, um, a four-year liberal arts uh, private university, um, faith-based in the Christian tradition. Uh, Nazarene is um, a Protestant denomination, and I think there's about seven uh, Nazarene universities throughout the U.S. and Canada. And so my role at that university was university chaplain. Um, And I think one of the great gifts of a of an institution like that is the intentionality of trying to blend academic learning or intellectual development with a faith development or a spiritual development, maybe to be a bit more a gen, a generic or general with that kind of language. So my role as chaplain was to really kind of be um, spiritual support for students. Um, that was kind of my primary role. Sometimes those roles also bleed into working with faculty and staff. I've also served as adjunct faculty teaching um, uh, spirituality courses or religion courses. But the role there at Point Loma was um, very much one of building relationships with students. And uh, and then also we had a a weekly gathering, three times a week, a tri-weekly gathering um, that was called Chapel. And uh, students would come and we would um, explore topics related to uh, faith, life, uh, looking through the lens of, um, of certainly the Christian tradition and understanding what does it mean to uh, to live a spiritual life, um, both internally and then also kind of how does that um, actually affect decisions in the world? So 
through social justice or through actions or, or whatever. So, um, so that was my role and our interaction then came from that um, in the sense of uh, you and I being able to connect at a pretty important time in your life as you were wrapping up your, your uh, college career. I was just starting there at Point Loma and so um, had that opportunity to, uh, um, to kind of open the door metaphorically, if you will, for students to come in and you were one of the students that honored me and privileged me uh, with your journey. And that's kind of how the, how the whole uh, relationship began was uh, you sharing with me where you were in that point in time and me um, serving as a sounding board and a, a spiritual companion along, along your path. Yeah. And I really, I, I really felt that it was, it was such a privilege and a blessing to have um, someone at that time who wasn't family, who wasn't a close friend, who wasn't mm -hmm. also like a, you know, what I'd assume or, or anticipate being a very like cold therapist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you were someone that I spent a lot of time with in front of, you know, at chapel. And so mm -hmm. I, I saw you regularly and I listened to your, your sermons and your talks. And, you know, there was um, a warmth there that felt really easy to approach you. Mm -hmm. and yeah. So it was a wonderful, like you said, blend of like some academic learning. I felt like we were able to dive into topics that were coming up around what was happening at university or what was happening personally. Um, and you did provide a lot of that just spiritual support and development and like, yeah, like a sounding board. It was really, mm -hmm. it was really wonderful. This is so funny. I just came back from last night a wonderful um, concert or what I will call kirtan, which you're familiar with. But for mm -hmm. anybody that doesn't know what kirtan is, it's basically a concert, but it's a gathering of people that come together for chanting and for um, bhakti yoga, which is like a devotional form of yoga. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny and serendipitous, obviously, that you and I are talking today because for me, chapel was that. Chapel was mm -hmm. what I would now define as bhakti yoga it's mm. the most powerful way that i was able to connect to my spirituality and my like sense of god and truth and self mm. um through, through song and through sound and mm. through the participation you know of um everyone in that room just coming together and chanting and that happened mm -hmm. at chapel that happened um last night and it's um yeah it's really powerful and potent and um, that's kind of where I see that we intersect the most. From the outside, I've known you in so many contexts over the years, you know, since, what was it, 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and I've related to you as a, as a mentor and a guide and someone who inherently, and I will say probably definitely more academically speaking, um, knows and shares many of the tenets of my own like spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been profound to share those experiences, a shared faith, um, the loss of intimate loved ones, um, having been raised within a Christian context, like you're saying over the last decade, really shifting, not out of, but reaching beyond that context into mm. principles and practices of yoga and different esoteric practices. Um, mm -hmm. And I would just love if you could describe a little bit about your 
your spiritual background, what it means for you to be spiritual, what this Mm -hmm. looks like, what it feels like in your life today, given that context of such a a vast spectrum of change. Yeah, most certainly. And you described the, uh, the Kirtan service and, and just uh, chapel. It's a, it's a really interesting um, and I think a beautiful way to kind of talk about those two, those two experiences. Um, uh, I think is uh, really powerful because at its heart, I think uh, community gathering together in song um, for ritual and ritual isn't dead to me. I think ritual is, um, I think for a lot of people, uh, words like ritual or tradition seem very lifeless. And that's not my, um, that's not my reality, not my perspective. I think ritual opens doors for us. And so, uh, yeah, gathering together three times a week um, was a, a powerful way to kind of uh, create these moments where you could enter in as an individual as well as a collective member of the whole. And, um, and so, um, yeah, I love, I love the, uh, the parallel between those two things. Uh, chapel was certainly, a, and is for those students, but when I was there, um, it was really a powerful time and created that space to then have those more deeper conversations um, offline um, as a as a spiritual uh, companion or guide or um, with students. So, and that really is kind of the heart of my journey. So I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Indiana. Um, grew up in a um, uh, a Nazarene home, a, a Christian home, a Protestant um, Christian home. And um, you know, from the early time, uh, I've I've always had a mystical bent. And when I mean mystical, um, I mean that for me, um, the divine, the inti- uh, the infinite, um, the transcendent is very real. Um, um, there is really no distinction between kind of uh, the sacred and the profane or this idea that, um, that uh, the infinite isn't involved in everyday life. I just felt it. Um, in fact, I remember stories. Uh, my mom would say that even when I was a child, an infant, uh, three years old, we would be in church services and, you know, kind of that classic language of um, old um, tent meetings or kind of that Bible belt kind of language of feeling the spirit in the service. That was a, a phrase that was often used in those contexts mm-hmm. and still is that when the, the spirit was felt within the service that I would, um, begin to weep. I would begin to cry as a child. There was just that sense of a profound um, sensitivity to that. Um, And that carried on. Um, So that certainly uh, colors my whole understanding of what spiritual life is. Um, And growing up in the church um, had a pretty powerful moment where I felt very clear that I wanted to devote my life to help people um, then in that language to helping people find God, to helping people discover um, the person of Jesus, to helping people, um, you know, uh, understand the love of God. Those were the, the, the words, the phrases, the terms um, that I used then and in many ways still use today at the level of um, wanting people and, and uh, desiring people to encounter infinite love. Um, and so that kind of set me on a path. Um, what's so interesting is that, you know, back then, I mean, I'm uh, 40, just turned 47. And um, so, you know, it seemed like there were five options if you wanted to go into quote unquote ministry. You could be a, a senior pastor of a local congregation. You could be a missionary. Uh, you could be a song evangelist, um, which basically was, you know, you would travel around and, and sing at different um, 
you know, at events um, that were uh, evangelistic in nature um, or a youth pastor or children's pastor. And none of those really resonated with me. I'm like, gosh, I none of those really like land on me. And so I kind of always felt a little bit on the outs, like, um, like I didn't fit. Um, and then when I got into university myself, I um, got into student leadership um, and was opened to the world of actually doing college ministry. And that was the first time. So this would have been the mid nineties where um, that discipline or that field was just starting to gain traction where people were looking at uh, university life and student affairs or student life as an actual, um, you know, life trajectory as a professional trajectory. So mm -hmm. um, I uh, graduated and then started to do all of my, um, my post um, undergrad or my, um, my graduate work in those areas. So um, I went to seminary and I did a, a degree in Christian education, but with an emphasis in young adult development. So I was exposed to the developmental theorists, um, you know, mm. Piaget and Kohlberg and um, Eric Erickson, and then looking through the faith lens of James Fowler and, um, and these folks, in addition to then reading, um, being exposed to the, um, the, the breadth of, uh, of Christendom, of, of the Christian tradition. And what's so interesting, and I'll share this, is that at the very end of that, I was at my senior year there at the Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City. I took a class called Spiritual Formation, and I was introduced to or reintroduced to an author that I had encountered when I was back in undergrad. A mentor of mine gave me a book by Henry Nowen. A Roman Catholic mm. priest. Um, Love the first book, now. yeah, so good. Um, passed in ninety six, um, nineteen ninety six. He passed away. And the first book I encountered was Life of the Beloved, which basically was the whole premise of the book was is that um, um, every human being is the beloved of God, and um, and so there was this this you know I knew that intellectually, but I had no clue really what that meant. I mean, as a as a senior in college, um, I was. You know, it seemed like I was reading another language. I could, I could uh, understand it conceptually that God loved me, but I had not, as now and would say, the idea or the truth that I'm loved by God never sank from my head to my heart, not till later on in life. And so it was this senior year of my seminary that I took a spiritual formation class and was reintroduced to now and, and other Catholic writers. And that was when really I realized, um, okay, Carter, you got, you got a whole life ahead of you that, um, that A, you don't know about. Um, you know, you can't lead others to a place that you yourself have never been. And so that then started um, a deeper journey of the spiritual life. And I went and I did another degree in, in spiritual formation at another um, seminary in Ohio. And uh, we were about 30 minutes away from an Eastern Orthodox monastery. Um, which is another um, uh, finger or tradition within the larger Christian tradition. Um, one of the very first, in fact, um, you know, uh, yeah, that and the Roman church would be the, the two parents, if you will, of, of yeah. all the other splinters. So, um, and that was, you know, my introduction into the, the true breadth of Christendom. I was reading Orthodox writers, Roman Catholic writers, Protestant writers, and then I was reading who they were reading. And um, that's where I fell in love with Thomas Merton, um, a Roman Catholic writer who um, was a monk um, out of a monastery in Kentucky. Um, but he was writing and living in a time where he befriended Thich Nhat Hanh, and there was a lot of conversation uh, surrounding, um, you know, what are the uh, 
the parallels or the connections between uh, a Western faith of Christianity and the Eastern faith of Buddhism, um, not so much in the sense of tenets or actual truths, um, but more on practices, contemplative practices of prayer, meditation, and so forth. And that really resonated with me. So all of that to say, this is long-winded, all of that to say is, is that my, my spiritual journey just kept leading this place of doing personal interior work and learning from the masters who um, went ahead of me, and then how that actually then translated to um, helping others. And so I found a real sense of, uh, of my purpose and calling is to be that, um, um, that spiritual director. Um, maybe not even so much with a title at times, so certainly though I had that title, but it was mm -hmm. more about the way in which you lived. And that um, if you looked throughout history, it seemed like those kind of teachers didn't necessarily put up a shingle and say, hey, I'm a spiritual teacher, come, come learn after me. Um, rather, just their life spoke in such a way that people began to kind of gather around them. And, um, and that's what I wanted to emulate. So those were the folks that um, kind of began to shape me. And, um, and I think looking back, because I know it's kind of where we're going to go with some of the other questions, I think uh, always having that being on the outside early on, not feeling like I fit, was really the, gave me the gift of trying to maybe look outside of just the conventional ways of doing um, spiritual direction, spiritual teaching, wisdom sharing. And so, which then also opened me to, to read a lot of people that broadened, broadened my perspective. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, it resonates so deeply with me because my experience, at least in my formative years, I'll call them, or or especially I can recall like a very distinct experience at Point Loma. I was sitting in chapel actually, and I don't recall if you were speaking or not. Um, and this has nothing to do with the quality of your presentation <laughs> or not, but um I was really dedicated to chapel. It was a beautiful time for me of the day and every week and that rite and ritual that you said. Um, it was really profound for me. And it really bothered me that I would go into chapel and be in prayer and in worship and like really having a wonderful spiritual experience for myself. And I would notice around the room that a lot of times, especially especially in the end times when we would like pray together as a, as a congregation that I would look around the room and like, not everybody's praying, you know, most people are distracted by something else. Mm -hmm. um, or even those that were, I felt like it had become so ritualized that there maybe perhaps was no meaning. Mm -hmm. Like this prayer was just something that we do every time. And even though, even though there is, meaning in just re repeating prayers or mantras mm -hmm. there wasn't any life to it and it really bothered me and i was like there's got to be something more than this particular um practice or this particular faith you know that mm -hmm. gets that gets me deeper into my understanding of self and love and others into their deeper understanding mm -hmm. and um yeah and that kind of initiated me to like look into these other practices um that we'll talk about but I think what you said about this uh, merging of Western traditions or rituals with mm -hmm. more of the Eastern traditions and rituals is something that I'd love to know more about because that's kind of where I'm 
really my interest lies, you know, is, mm-hmm. is merging those, those different facets because I think in everything, everyone's looking for the same thing, right? We're all looking for love. We're all looking to be an experience and to give and to share in that. So whether it mm-hmm. comes from one um, avenue or the other, there's so much that we can glean from those other traditions and practices. So sure. what are yeah. some of the parallels that you have found? Um, you mentioned prayer and meditation or actually just the practices across these different cultural traditions mm-hmm. that really have a, a, a parallel truth more than a tenant or, or a philosophy. What are some of those parallels that you found? Yeah. And I would think, you know, I, I certainly, um, you know, my perspective is, is heavily influenced by this kind of um, um, this philosophical ideal or this theological idea that the universe is, um, I'll say it this way, uh, the universe originates, is sustained, and is completed in love and by love. And so I think, um, uh, though that may sound very difficult to wrap your mind around in the sense of, oh, it sounds, you know, a little woo woo, or it sounds a little too sentiment, uh, you know, sentimental. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I genuinely feel that, um, that's kind of the whole, that's the, that's the understanding of the enterprise of this whole human experience is that everything in the universe speaks to, um, um, the essence of love, the being loved, loving. Um, and for me, then we have to kind of try and figure that out. And that's a whole other question, but I think that certainly colors my, my uh, approach then to looking at my own tradition, which I am still deeply Christian, um, but am finding myself immersed um, in this beautiful world of the whole. And I think that's probably, that would be the first piece to kind of get us to then, looking at um, the value or looking at what other traditions and other people groups are bringing to the table um, is that realizing that kind of faith development, if you will, the more that we mature, the um, less uh, non-negotiables we possess, not because um, we are somehow angst against certitude, but I think there's just a deeper sense that you are being drawn into mystery. And if the infinite is truly infinite and we're finite at the level of meaning we, um, you know, have a, a very finite experience on in, in earth on this, in this moment that at some level there's going to be that, which is always unknown to us. So I think there is a sense in which um, the more we progress in, uh, in our lives and spirituality is a part of that. um, The more we realize we don't know. And I think there, that is kind of the, um, the springboard of um, what Fowler would say is a, you know, the ultimate goal of, of moving through stages of faith development would lead to a universalizing faith as opposed to a very um, uh, colloquial or uh, sectarian faith, which is very individualized, very um, exclusive and so forth. So the, mm-hmm. the, in, the universalizing faith is this level of you recognizing the whole. Um, that um, there's just more and more room for um, for more um, uh, language has been used that uh, this is hospitality that the table is open um, that that it's not exclusive but it is inclusive which doesn't mean then it all becomes vanilla it just means that the um, the particularity of a 
of, of a certain tradition or of, of an individual isn't lost in the community and vice versa. The community isn't lost in the, in the particularity of the, of the individual. And so all of that then comes to this place of what am I seeing? I think, the, I think each tradition has these, uh, these beautiful gifts. And, and I've not done a great deal. This is a, still a relatively a new expression for me, um, the sense of exploring uh, yoga philosophy, yoga theory. Um, I mean, I just, uh, I completed my uh, yoga teacher training in um, um, basically the spring of 2017. So it started winter of, uh, right around December 2016 and then ended the spring um, early, late winter, early spring of 2017. So I've um, been practicing yoga for the last five years, but um, that was when I did my teacher training and then was all the more kind of immersed in, in yoga theory, yoga philosophy, um, and then started seeing these parallels that I read about in seminary with Merton and Thich Nhat Hanh and the contemplative mm-hmm. life and so forth. Um, I think that um, one thing that I would say is that I think that each each uh, path, each philosophy, each kind of expression of trying to understand life, this, these deeper questions of, of meaning, of purpose, of love, of, um, you know, of, uh, of compassion, charity, and so forth, that these are the fundamental questions that, um, that every path is, is wrestling with um, and trying to make sense of. I think the great gift is that um, each path um, answers the question differently enough to where you can get a fuller picture, a greater mm. picture. And, um, uh, and I think that's, that's beginning to, to be where I'm landing. And, and by saying that, I, th- I think once again, I want to reiterate that it's not a, a melting pot where now it's just kind of this, you know, very uh, tasteless, um, everything's the same because it's not. Um, each tradition holds their own, um, their own question that they're seeking to answer. And I think to truly be um, a student of, of the traditions and to be on a spiritual path is to honor each of those questions uh, and not feel like that, oh, this, you know, Christianity is going to answer Buddhism or Buddhism is going to answer Christianity or, or whatever, but to really understand that um, there, are, um, there are specific questions that each um, tradition, each stream, is trying to answer and um, and honoring each one by by understanding what those questions are and how they get to that answer I think is the fuller picture and in my mind's eye what I would think would be a universalizing faith that you're able to hold these tensions um, and sometimes they disagree with one another it's not all you know roses and unicorns <laughs> um, sometimes there's some disagreement um, and so I think that's where you acquiesce to mystery um, mm. And you, you, uh, and not in a, you know, whenever I, whenever I say that word acquiesce, I always kind of have that, you know, boys, elementary school boys, you know, you, you, you know, play uncle, right. You wrap someone's arm around their back and you say, uncle, say uncle, you know, this level of like acquiesce, like uncle, you know, (laughs) I give up, uh, you win. And it's not that it's the acquiesce of trust. It's the realizing that I don't know everything, but I trust that the not knowing is where I need to be. Mm-hmm. because that's where I'm going to discover something. And mm-hmm. so I think that's the, that's that level of acquiesce. It's not a, it's not a, a fatalism of giving up. It's a trust of uh, giving oneself to mystery. 
And, mm. um, and so I think the practices of prayer, I think the practices of intention, one of the things I'm so fascinated with here lately is the study of uh, kind of a chakra theory, uh, the energy centers and understanding uh, chakras, the seven major chakras uh, that are you know run up and down the spine in the chakra theory of these are uh, the wheels or the discs, if you will, where uh, life force energy moves and animates each part of the human existence. So the root chakra deals with this level of you know survival or belonging or being grounded, and it makes its way all the way to the crown chakra, which deals with connecting with that which is transcendent or beyond us. And one of the things I have so appreciated is um, been some of the the real creative work um, that is looking at kind of a, a, a psychology of the chakras and looking at what do the chakras, what questions do the chakras seek to answer from a psychological perspective, not just a purely energetic one. And that so has you've been- read, I have to interrupt you. You've read um, Judith, yes, uh, yeah. Judith's book, Eastern Body, Western Mind, which is- so exactly. rich and so deep and so extensive on psychology and the chakra system really as what you were saying as like a path to a divine experience or like a greater mm-hmm. experience. Exactly. That's, that's exactly the book that I'm referring to. And um, that has been really powerful because I think there are times within my tradition as a Christian that um, we don't do a very good job of unpacking what spiritual maturity looks like at the various points of human life. The church has kind of fallen into this camp of the do's and the don'ts. And um, we miss the subtle nuances of what does everyday life look like? And I think um, um, what I have found so refreshing and what I have found um, beautifully uh, translatable, if you will, even in my own life, is looking at the chakras and looking at the, the questions that they seek to answer. Like the root chakra would, 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 would ask the question, do I have the right to be here, to belong? Well, now you're talking about Erickson's, you know, trust versus mistrust is the first stage of human development. You're talking about questions of safety. You're looking at kind of that old... Um, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of need of safety mm-hmm. and so forth. And all of these things kind of bl- blend with one another. And now I'm really at, you know, forced to ask the question, do I feel like I have the right to take up space in the world? And I think, you know, not to, you know, um, to get, be an armchair psychologist, but I think that there is, that is a, that's a really deep question that a lot of people struggle to answer because when push comes to shove, I think we do have, um, uh, a level of low self-esteem that says I, it's not good for me to take up space, that there's something inherently wrong with me. And so uh, I think these, you know, and then you just kind of walk up that, you know, that spinal ladder of the chakras and you're asking all these different questions. So that's just one example where I find the merge or the blend really helpful. Sorry to interrupt you, but in a way, this has been my experience also within my Christian faith is that there was always something, I'll use the word lacking because that's Mm -hmm. how I experienced it, but there was always Mm -hmm. something lacking. Like, yes, the Christian doctrines and the precepts and the the fundamental like values of following the person of Christ were, were sufficient and wonderful and a lifetime Mm of (laughs) a lifetime of application. But there was something that was always lacking and that was the day to day, um, expression of like what how am i spiritually growing besides am i doing right or wrong based on what 
you know, the tenants or the Bibles or right. anything tells me that I'm doing. It was never like very, very useful to how am I showing up in my, in my relationship to myself, in my relationship to others. Right. Yeah. And I found yeah. that as I experimented with and explored these other worldviews, like you had described, there's, there's just, um, there's so much room for more. And mm -hmm. it's not that I disagree with or that I found that my, my faith in Christianity or, or that background was lacking. It's just that it's not necessarily complete. There's just so much more to be experienced and to be um, explored through these other practices. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I'd, I'll, I'll make one more um, kind of illustration or example of how these things have um, um, manifested in my life. I, I think much of Christianity's spirituality as I have encountered it and studied it through two masters and then um, uh, post-graduate uh, work um, looking at, um, you know, spirituality and leadership tends to be very heady. Um, and um, there is a little bit of, a, of an antagonism toward the body. And so there t almost seems to be um, a trend, not, not that it's not present within Christianity. I believe that it is. And there's certainly these profound writers that talk about an embodied spirituality. But I think um, the knee-jerk reaction, um, the, the shadow side, if you will, or whatever, the, the place where we typically go within my tradition is a very disembodied spirituality because we're trying to uh, transcend you know, something that's broken, right? So the human, you know, the human experience is broken, so we want to try and transcend it. But the problem with that kind of philosophy is, is that um, then the body becomes bad, right? And mm -hmm. so then anything that's human-related or bodily-related is there's a real um, difficulty of how do I live in that tension. And coming into yoga, um, I mean, certainly it was present as I was studying and other things because there are some body expressions of Christian spirituality that I found very resonating with me in the course of my study. But it wasn't until I actually started practicing yoga that I realized that, um, how everything was connected. Um, I mean, I knew it once again, it was like reading that now and book back in college. I knew that I was the loved beloved of God, but it didn't, it had not sunk from the head to the heart. And I think um, it wasn't until I really started practicing yoga that I knew that there was an understanding that everything was connected, that the body was as important as the soul or the spirit or however you want to kind of parse that out. But um, it, uh, it hadn't really sunk to the place of actually understanding that, um, like another great book, um, The Body Keeps Score, that the body is intricately involved in our lives. Like we actually store trauma, we store memory, we, we store, um, you know, so much of the human experience actually in the physicality of our body. And so, um, I, you know, <clears throat> I'm lying in Shavasana and I'm weeping and I'm like, why am I crying in Shavasana? It's hot yoga. I'm so glad that everyone is sweating because I, no one knows that I'm bawling my eyes out. <clears throat> and so, um, and that, and that was that realization that, oh, wow, the body is, um, is one more vehicle or one more expression of the spiritual life. And so these shapes that we move through or poses that we move through were quite profound. And I think that was the other piece that I have been reveling in over the last um, five years, but three years is now as a, as a yoga teacher and practitioner and, and guide and so forth is showing the interconnect of the whole 
that um, on every it, level, <laughs> on every level, exactly. Yeah. So that when you get into a, um, uh, you know, a, 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 a hip opener um, that there, wow, there may be an emotional release there. And nine times out of 10, there probably is. And sometimes it's so subtle, you don't even know it. Sometimes it comes on you like a wave uh, or whatever other posture that you're entering into. Um, and I think that's one of the great gifts that that's kind of where I'm getting at is I want the medicine cabinet filled with everything possible that I could understand the human experience. Mm, and, um, and I think that's the beauty and where I'm, um, I want to retain my tradition and the beauty of it. Um, but at the same breath, I'm realizing that there's, that there's more. I just, I, here recently I've been saying to friends as we're talking about these topics, I just think God is m- my language. I think God is constantly saying, yes, yes. Yes, just more. Just it 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 expands, and so um, it's been really, um, yeah. It's been a, it's been a great gift to kind of enter these disciplines and see the crossovers. Mm. The very very visceral experience that I have of God saying yes is I even take away the word God and I kind of break it down into G O D. Which is good orderly direction from mm. another very very profound writer, um, whose name I can't think of in this very moment. But um, good orderly direction for me is a very embodied experience. It is a continual affirmation when I see and experience things that feel like they are moving in my body and in my in my experience of life outside. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I find those moments or those experiences or those learnings and I attribute them as God because I'm like, oh, that's, yes, that's the yes. It's, it's like a spiral. Mm -hmm. It's like an evolution and a growth and an expansion of like, yes, that's, that's the orderly direction. You're going in a good, a good orderly direction. It's beautiful. Right. Yeah, indeed. Which reminds me and is a wonderful segue into what I really want to talk with you about, which is sound. And the combination of sound as a healing modality and as just a a common language, a common cellular experience for everything right. on earth, right? Mm-hmm. Vibration. Yep. And really sound as a sacred practice. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what it means for something to be sacred um, mm-hmm. in your in your experience or based on your learning and talk a little bit about how sound has played a big part of your spiritual life or your spiritual practice. Um, Well, I think, um, you know, we kind of alluded a little bit um, to the idea of the sacred, but um, I think uh, for me, sacred is when the, when those infinite or transcendent elements and by that I mean love, meaning, purpose, community, compassion, creativity, courage, hope. I mean, that, that's not meant to be an exhaustive list. It's just these, these infinite qualities of, of um, profound goodness or transcendent goodness. Or um, when these things touch kind of those very um, 
temporal experiences throughout the day. So in Celtic spirituality, which is a, a spirituality based in Ireland, so the Celts were an early mm-hmm. people that lived in Ireland, a very nature-based spirituality, they would um, had a way of talking about the sacred and the profane, um, not, a, not a word that we use very, in fact, it kind of carries a derogatory um, connotation nowadays, but the profane was just the temporal. It's just that which was passing, right? It's the, it's clock time. Um, just the reality of uh, now it's 9.15, it's going to be 9.17 in two minutes and 9.15 is gone kind of a thing. So it's just that temporality sure. of it. Um, and so for the Celts, uh, they called them thin moments or thin places where um, where that which didn't disappear meets that which does disappear. <clears throat> and so I think, I think the sacred are these, are these aha moments where we recognize that uh, these two worlds are actually closer than what we think. Because um, I think most of the time we live a very uh, bifurcated life where, oh, I have my spiritual life over here and then I have my physical life over here and the two never really uh, interact much unless they are in a, you know, uh, a gathering, um, like a church gathering or a, you know, um, some other religious-oriented gathering. I think the sacred, a true understanding of the sacred is recognizing that they are constantly interacting with one another, mm. not so that they remove their particularity. And I think this is where I keep coming back to. Just because something is universal or one doesn't mean that it loses its particularity. So the infinite is still infinite and um, the finite is still finite, the, um, the transcendent and, and the imminent. Um, so, but it's this, it's this understanding the sacred is this understanding that these two things are, are kind of moving in and out of each other. And I think we recognize the sacred in those, to use the Celts language, in those thin places, those thin moments where those lines intersect. So think of it kind of like um, DNA helix, you know, where they kind of, um, that's kind of what I'm thinking of, where these, mm-hmm. these lines intersect. At, sometimes they spring out and they're single lines and then they come back in on each other. I think recognizing the sacred is when those things come back in on one another, those two lines intersect. And that could be anything, Bridget. I mean, that could be, you know, um, a meal uh, uh, shared with other people. It could be, you know, an experience of charity that you're giving to someone or an experience of charity that's being given to you. That could be um, a hike through nature. It could be, you know, spending the weekend in Yosemite. It could be um, sitting on your surfboard in the ocean. It could be, um, you know, holding um, your lover close to you. Whatever that may be, I think, I think that's the great gift of it is that the sacred then becomes, you know, um, as wide as it is broad, because you recognize these these um, individual lines intersecting all throughout the day, um, and I think that's where we kind of begin to understand mindfulness a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's there's therein lies another rabbit trail to to recognize that mindfulness is is so much more than just kind of being aware of the present moment for stress reduction, you know, um, it's like, whoa, well, yes. yeah, it's-, it's really easy to quantify <laughs> mindfulness as like, yes, I'm being very aware of my breath in this very moment. And it is positively affecting exactly. my brain chemistry. And that is wonderful. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many, you know, well, it's a very popular, it's a great, I love it. I'm so glad, glad that there's that kind of traction with the whole topic because, you know, I mean, you walk into Sprouts or, or any other place where there's a magazine rack and, you know, mindfulness is, 
is one of the magazine top articles. It's the cover, right? Um, so yep. from Newsweek to whatever. So I think uh, sometimes that can get lost. But um, mindfulness, I think, is a way of helping us discover those crossing points where we recognize the sacred. So I think that's, for me, that's the sacred. And, and, um, and I, I, you know, um, trying to live in such a posture throughout the day where you are recognizing the multiplicity of those moments. Not so much that you're kind of lost in the clouds and you're not really rooted or grounded and, you know, everything is going to be all right. And no, I think you um, just because you recognize the sacredness of the moment doesn't mean that you are um, somehow inoculated from the emotion or the experience of that moment. Um, Correct. We talked a little bit about, you know, both of us losing loved ones. I lost my wife five years ago to cancer and um uh, obviously a profoundly tragic experience and, um, and sacred as well. And so um, it's not that the sacred somehow kind of, like I said, inoculates us from experiencing the depth or the, um, the difficulty of the moment, but you realize um, that it's not solely the moment, uh, that, that experience of difficulty that is defining, um, but there's more to it. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a thread. There's, there's a, a thread, thread that's constantly connecting mm -hmm. moments of mundanity or redundancy or whatever right. with mm -hmm. moments of incredible profundity. And that's, yeah, that's, that's for me what being spiritual is. It's recognizing exactly. that, that is the way to exist, yeah. that I can sit here in the middle of my office and it's completely, it's completely a boring environment. It's an office, but there's such a profundity in the way that the light hits my paper, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. on the page. And just to be able to be in that state of mind and state of heart, aware of connection at all times. Yeah, I think right. that's really what sacred, what sacred is. You can make anything sacred because everything can be. Exactly. Yeah. And so then sound as that relates to this whole, place is one more well it it's kind of the chicken and the egg if you will if you look at kind of um sound throughout human history the the bulk the majority of um human civilization's understanding of how the world was called into being created into being started whatever language you want to use sound is a part of it um, it's either um, spoken, the universe is spoken into being, the universe is sung into being, the universe has uh, a poem into being, there's a conversation that takes place. It's really super fascinating as you begin to look at kind of just a 35,000 foot view of um, human civilization's um, meta narrative of how the universe began. There all seems to be sound as the foundation. And so if, if you go back and listen to the first episode I ever made of this podcast, it literally is that Yeah. Mm -hmm. sound exactly. was what birthed creation. And I go into a really crazy, heady monologue about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and what we now know, understand um, scientifically is that uh, sound um, is, is not, uh, we think of it as purely as an auditory phenomenon. It's, it's not only an auditory phenomenon. It, it adds its heart. It's a vibratory phenomenon. And so it's, it's, it's energy. It's energy vibra vibration being passed from molecule to molecule to molecule. And um, what we're understanding is that as sound moves through matter, it actually creates these, uh, it's called sonic scaffolding or these geometrical shapes. They're mathematical geometrical shapes. Uh, 
And what we know is that healthy cellular life needs structure for complexity. And so there's a, a you know, pretty documented theory that um, um, complex cellular life began deep in the ocean floor um, as these hydrothermal vents were emitting um, steam um, because wa uh, sound moves five times faster through water than air because water is more dense than air. Um, you had this kind of this perfect environment, if you will, for sonic scaffolding to multiply at a, you know, mm. at an exponential rate, which then creates this, the opportunity for complex cellular life. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is how does that connect to the sacred? Well, one, you realize that inherent to sound is the capacity for creativity, for new life. And I think that's that is a, it, it may seem a bit esoteric, but I think we have to kind of wrap our minds around that sound is doing something mysteriously that we may not even fully understand what it is doing in us or what it's doing in our environment. So it has the capacity for, for creativity or for creation um, and, and, and newness. I'll say it that way. So it, it, it may not, uh, it, it can be a bit more accessible. So there's a, yeah. there's a, there's capacity for newness in sound. And then you, so that's one aspect. And then the other piece of sound is that it calls us. I think it, it, uh, it's, it's one of these kind of aids like breath or like an asana practice that becomes um, a, a clarion call that kind of wakes us up. Um, and we know this in that physiologically what it's doing. Um, I play, um, you know, the singing bowls, there's a variety of instruments I play as a sound practitioner. And um, these sounds lower heart rate, they lower blood pressure, they, they move us from that sympathetic nervous system of fight, flight, or freeze to a parasympathetic nervous system of rest and digest. Um, it entrains the brain waves to a theta state, which is this just above delta where we fall asleep and have deep REM. Theta is this daydream, deep meditation place. So sound creates an environment for us to have those aha moments of an awareness of the sacred. So I think that's the level of where sound can be a profound tool um, and, and help us kind of get to that place of recognizing the sacredness, the beauty, the gift of the present moment is a language that I use often in my classes. The gift of the present moment, no matter what that moment may be. So um, you recognize it as profound gift and mm. instead of withdrawing from it. And this is what, um, you know, walking with um, uh, Rebecca, my, my, my late spouse was, is this whole idea of leaning into the experience as opposed to withdrawing from the experience. And I think that's the, that's the rub. So often we love the moments of the sacredness that is light and airy kind of the, if you want to use another metaphor, the full moon revelation, we love our full moons, man. We like yes. harvest. We love power. We love, we love all of that. Not so much stoked on the new moon because it's, it's dark. It's mysterious. It's unknown. Um, and, and then you add the other layer. We don't like transition. So waxing and waning, we're just not even there. <laughs> so we don't want anything to do with transition. We like full revelation. But I think mm. when we begin to understand the sacredness of the moment and we allow these practices of sound, um, chant or instrument or, you know, other forms of breath or so forth to help kind of create an environment. It, 
enables us or, or creates the space for us to lean in. It reminds us, lean in, don't pull away, because it's in leaning in that you're actually going to discover it. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's one of the real powerful gifts. And then sound at its heart. I mean, it also just, you know, creates a very restful environment and we're a stressed people and, and um, we live. Well, sound from, affects your physiology, just like does. taking ibuprofen affects your physiology, just like thinking happy thoughts versus negative thoughts affects your physiology and your physiology is equally affected and can affect your environment. Exactly. So exactly. everything's connected. Like we right. said, we the yoga teaches mm -hmm. us, right? Every, every fucking thing is connected. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, it all comes back to it. Yeah. There's, there's a great the profane book and the profanity. Exactly. Um, yeah. There's a beautiful but, book by Richard Rohr. Um, it's called Everything Belongs. And um, I love the title. It's a, it's a profound book. It was one of the ones formative for me of kind of on this path of recognizing the whole of things as opposed to focusing on the exclusivity of something. And I love that statement. Uh, that this, the title alone, can be a mantra for me. Everything belongs. Everything mm. belongs. And it's really easy to say that when things are roses and unicorns and rainbows. Um, it's another thing to lean into those moments that are difficult and go, everything belongs. I'm going to lean into this for it all belongs. And, um, and I think that's a sound helps us um, swallow that sometimes difficult pill. You mentioned the word mantra and, you know, growing up in the church, like mantra was like, really bad like you don't say True. mantras you don't have idols like this is bad um, right. mantra is like literally a vibration and mm -hmm. so if you could mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what mantra means or how it's significant in your sound practice and maybe talk a little bit about what is a sound bath for those of the listeners here that don't know, I mean, you don't literally take a bath, although mm -hmm. you do. <laughs> right, so maybe yeah. you could just talk about what that experience is as a sound practitioner, what it feels like, what it looks like, what instruments you use, what is mantra, um, how, how is it a concert and how is it not? Right. Well, I think, um, I think first off, uh, the beauty about um, the mantra being a sound is that it's linked to the human voice and um uh you know the greatest sound um i did my um my certification in sound healing from the soul of yoga uh, up in encinitas and um, there's a lot of talk about and you know there's profound frequencies of bowls and all these instruments that, but yet the 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 sound or the frequency that is the most powerful is the human voice. And probably I think at some levels because as in utero, that's one of the first sounds we hear other than the, the mother's heartbeat. Um, those that distinguishing um, frequency of uh, high and low frequencies of the various voices around, um, there's a powerful book called the, um, it's actually called The Power of Sound, where it's actually looking at how um, those frequencies impact neurological development uh, in utero. And so we need the range of high frequencies and low frequencies to stimulate um, a healthy range of neurological development. But I think, I think at its heart, when I think of mantra, um, I think that it is, it is tapping this place of voice. It is tapping this place of my human um, creation of vibration that is uniquely me. 
Um, and so often I think what's really fascinating as it relates to the, the role of human voice is that we live in a culture because music has become professionalized um, that we feel like it is only reserved for those who um, have perfect pitch or is only reserved for those who sound, you know, mass masterfully, um, you know, um, produced on a, you know, a digital album or whatever. And so, but the reality is, is that our, our own voice, even humming, uh, just our own vibration. Um, and our creation of that is quite therapeutic, quite profound. And so I think uh, the way that they'll probably the last month I've started to, I use, um, uh, the Shruti box, which is a kind of a form of a harmonium um, and, and chanting. And I'm really surprised um, at how it is landing on people. In fact, people, the kind of general response is, um, please do more. Um, and I think, I think voice has been so relegated to the professional realm and singing is so relegated to the professional realm that uh, the everyday voice um, of our own or of someone else's um, is lost. And so when we hear it in the context of creating sacred space or creating a safe space for us to fully enter into, it's just like a breath of fresh air. And so, um, so, you know, as it relates to overall sound bath, I think, you know, um, you're basically what you're doing is so sound healing is the larger umbrella. This is how I would describe it. So think of sound healing, that term as the large umbrella under that umbrella, then sits kind of two categories, sound meditation and sound therapy, sound meditation would what we would call like a sound bath. It's the 60 minutes to 90 minutes, the use of sound to create um, a resting, relaxing experience where sound lowers your heart rate, lowers your blood pressure, moves you to a theta state, um, and just kind of facilitates deep relaxation. We call it a sound bath because you're immersed in sound. And I've had some people ask me, am I going to get wet anytime at this point? And I'm like, no, 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 this is not an actual bath. Um, but you are immersed in sound. Um, and it is moving because the human body is comprised of 60 to 70% water. The sounds that we're playing are actually moving faster through you than the air between you and your neighbor. Um, and so you are immersed. Isn't that just, isn't that just <laughs> incredible? I have to pause you for a minute because it's easy to just brush by that intellectually. Oh yeah, water. We're made of water. It's amazing that we are completely a vessel or a, yeah. uh, a conduit for yeah. vibration to move through. Like that is incredibly profound just to yeah. consider. Yeah, exactly. So by weight, and obviously the older we get, the less water because we dehydrate. Since so there's a little uh, sound bite commercial. Make sure you drink water. Um, the older you get, we need to continue to hydrate. Um, but yeah, we're basically sixty to seventy percent water by weight. Molecularly, it's like ninety percent water. So you're right. We are a conduit for vibrational energy. And remember, once again, this um, this idea that once vibration moves through matter, it creates sonic scaffolding. That's why this burgeoning science of understanding how sound can be used as a healing modality in the medical world, um, not only in kind of the mental health world um, and the energetic world of, um, of body work and so forth, but actually looking at um, medical conditions. And there's a whole host of, uh, of, uh, of authors that are kind of uh, looking at this, researching this, um, dealing with uh, terminal illness and so forth, where they're looking at how does sound impact uh, a healthy experience and how can it 
be one of the modalities used to bring um, harmony back to um, uh, a human experience that is that's struggling with or dealing with or walking a journey of terminal illness. Yeah. And so, you've been working at the Scripps Institute I in have. San Diego, correct? And so that's mm-hmm. they to describe them because I don't know a lot about the Scripps Institute except for they're like sure, yeah, very. So Scri- pioneers and what they do in the medical industry and field and wellness and science. Yeah. So we, um, um, so Scripps uh, is a hospital here in San Diego and we work, um, I co-own a company called Zen Soul Balance based here in San Diego. And we focus on sound healing and uh, yin or restorative yoga uh, and then mindfulness practices, nutrition and so on and so forth. But those are kind of the two things that we're really focusing on is that, um, a functional approach to yoga that which is would be lending itself to yen and then um, sound healing. So we partner with uh, with Scripps Integrative Medicine, and a lot of um, hospitals obviously have an integrative um, department that's looking at kind of the totality as opposed to you know just the discipline of of neurology or the discipline of uh, whatever. Um, and so um, so we partner with their fitness center called Shiley. So, um, and on Thursdays I teach classes actually today I'll teach, um, I teach a couple uh, restorative yoga classes and then we also do a class for cancer patients or cancer survivors and, um, where we include, um, a great deal of the singing bowls. And so, uh, the, the overall kind of hope of that is, is that one, you are, you know, minimally giving back to a population of people that for the most part of their journey, something is being taken from them. You know, mm. doctor's appointments and so forth are always something that's requiring something of them. And so this is an experience where something is being given to them. Um, and then on top of that, you do have this, like I said, this burgeoning science of trying to understand how sound is actually impacting um, on a physiological level, as well as a kind of a a psychoacoustic level, you know, in the sense of um, our nervous system and um, the way in which we approach, you know, difficult things. So when you're dealing with a life-threatening illness, it's not only the illness that you're dealing with, now you're forced to deal with end-of-life topics, end-of-life issues. And so um, you have these kind of uh, dual journeys, if you will. And so um, I think that's, that's part of what we're doing there is, you know, we are working to create environments um, that encourage, um, um, to use a Brene Brown uh, term, a wholehearted life, um, mm. a life of courage, a life of compassion, and a life of connection, and utilizing sound and uh, asana as a part of that. And then there's this other piece that um, is doing something within the body sound is doing something. One of the other things super fascinating about sound is sound um, releases natural opiates um, in the body. So the brain actually releases, due to vibration, actually releases natural opiates in the body. And really? So, yeah. So there is a, there is a pain-killing um, response that sound um, triggers or elicits within within the body, and so if you'd like to, there are a couple books that um, you know I recommend. One would be The Healing Power of Sound by Mitchell Gaynor. He was an oncologist, passed away. I think um, my dates are not as conclusive, but I think about four or five years ago. The Healing Power of Sound an oncologist that was utilizing sound bowls, the Tibetan brass bowls for a good portion of his, uh, the last, I want to say maybe 10 years or so um, in his treatments. And then the other is called the power of sound. Um, Both of those, and I'm blanking on the, 
the author of that book. But Mitchell Gaynor really kind of um, speaks about this, and that's where he talks about um, sound as a releasing of natural opiates. So um, you have people that uh, experience, um, you know, uh, a reduction of pain or a, a, a total relief of pain, and um, and that's that's a real gift as well. So sound, just a real quick. So people come in for like a, a 60 minute sound bath uh, or, or a 75 minute sound bath. They're going to come in. We're going to start in a seated uh, position uh, and the legs out in front or crossed. We're going to do a little bit of breath work, a little bit of shoulder rolls, more just to get you settled into the space to kind of make that transition from task, responsibility, everything that you just were doing before you walked through the doors. We're going to settle you in, get you into that place, and then we lie you down, or you could be remaining seated. And then for the, the bulk of the time, we play a sequences of, of sounds, um, utilizing quartz crystal singing bowls, utilizing the brass Tibetan bowls, um, a variety of auxiliary percussion instruments from steel tongue drums to chimes to wave drums to thunder drums to, um, you know, uh, gongs and so forth. Um, and then we're creating this, um, in my mind's eye, uh, how I approach a sound bath is I create a story. I create a story where much like the cycles of the moon, we start maybe uh, in mystery, we come to full revelation, and then we move back to mystery. Um, and people have a variety of experiences within that sound. Sound um, lands on us in a very powerful way and uh, triggers some, um, you know, emotion. And so it really is, um, yeah, it just is all dependent upon um, how folks encounter sound. Sometimes sound is simply that, which is this uh, place of uh, just experiencing bliss. It's just experiencing um, deep rest and relaxation. And then it's also a place where people have some really profound emotional um, connections. Uh, and I like to say that sound is hospitable and that it creates the space for you to enter wherever you are to enter. Um, and some, it's just they come to a sound bath and like, man, that was exactly what I needed after a really stressful day at work. And other people walk away and the anecdotal evidence of the last two years are sharing some really profound things, out-of-body experiences. One man came to me, he was Cuban. He um, was visiting his daughter here in San Diego. He only spoke Spanish. And she couldn't translate fast enough. He was so excited, uh, tears running down his face. Hmm. He said, I saw my death. I saw my death. And I'm not filled with, uh, with fear, but I'm filled with joy and excitement. And you go, whoa, okay. So you just have this variety of experiences of, of, of what people are actually encountering during a sound bath and wow. realizing that sound lands in the same place in our brains where we hold emotional memory where we hold these kind of uh, profound uh, insights and where we are wrestling with topics or issues of meaning, belonging, purpose, and so forth. So, yeah, there's a wow. lot that goes on to it. And I think it's the great part about it is, is that, you know, you just create the space as a sound practitioner and you allow people to come. And, you know, some folks will say, oh, wow, um, I didn't like the gong. The gong was, um, it didn't land on me or it didn't resonate with me. Or there was a sound that really was eerie to me and I don't like that sound. And then they're like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, it means that you didn't like the sound. It could have been that maybe there's something there to deal with. But I really, I, I caution that. Sometimes I hear sound practice 
practitioners say, oh, if you didn't like a sound, that means there's an issue you need to deal with. And I'm like, God, that could be really kind of a mind job on someone. I, I like to approach it as going, at its heart, it just means that that sound didn't resonate with you. All sounds, there's some that just don't resonate with us, and that's fine. Um, and then there are some sounds that resonate deeply with us. Um, my encouragement when someone says, well, should I track something down with it? I'm, I'm reminded of the monk back in Ohio who once told me, it's like, um, you know, spiritual maturity or the spiritual journey, you don't have to go looking through the garbage to try and figure out something to, to work on in your life. When it's time, it will come up. And I think mm. that's, the, that's the whole admonition there is, is that, yeah, sound may trigger something in you that you may need to track down. If so, so be it. What a gift. It could just be that, you know, I just don't like, you know, the Shruti box or whatever it is. You know, I just, it just doesn't land on me. It's like, cool. All right. Or, or with other practices too. I mean, certainly every day that I sit for meditation, it's not in your phrase, uh, roses and unicorns. Like right. mm -hmm. not every meditation leaves me with this incredible takeaway and like profound vision that, now affects my life like I just sat and I did my meditation or I like I gave myself that space right. um it's kind of like the quote from Lion King when Simba's like well I need to go and like look for trouble to be brave and to show that right. I'm the king like I have courage and and his wise wonderful father Mufasa you know he's like just because you're a king doesn't mean you go looking for trouble and I think right. you're right in saying that there are so many healing modalities and there are so many um, sacred practices, let's say, in a spiritual person's life. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that every single moment has to have an aware meaning for you. It's right. A, it's a. It's a. On the contrary, rather, it's not like a a heroic feat that every everything that you experience, like in that moment, you understand. Right. It's mm -hmm. it's the result of that slow and contemplative contemplative practice the coming back to another sound therapy or the coming back to prayer or the coming back to sitting for meditation every day that starts to transform your awareness of your inner landscape right yeah well said no exactly yeah so i think that's kind of uh yeah taken all kind of collectively i think that you know sound this is um I say sound does something in us and sound does something for us. And I think um, that's what I mean. It's creating an environment for us and then it's doing something in us that um, I think scientifically um, our culture and, you know, we're still trying to figure out. Um, I mean, it's been about 15 years, um, you know, 15, 20 years of, of doing, you know, specific kind of um, uh, research and scientific kind of exploration about how sound does impact us, which is fairly, you know, still pretty, pretty um, uh, embryonic, if you will, as it relates to kind of scientific, you know, research. But um, I think what the you know, more and more we're realizing is that, wow, this thing's doing far more than what we anticipated it to do. Uh, so now it's trying to figure out what, how, how do we, um, yeah, how do we how do we uh, approach sound in such a way where it's maybe not as haphazard in the sense of you're just you know doing a variety of sounds, but are there targeted experiences of sound that can elicit a specific result? Mm -hmm. um, and I think certainly there's uh, there are, um, and I think there what seems to be the growing consensus is how do we do that, um, and, and not do it in such a way to where now it's 
you know, um, commodified and it's on the shelf and, you know, you just, it's one more piece because it still is a, it still is a contemplative practice. And I think every, every, you know, it's like yoga, right? I mean, yoga, uh, yoga is quite profound and it can also just be something that, you know, a pill that you pop to be, you know, fit and to be, uh, uh, you know, um, to be flexible and you go, Oh, that's great. Those are great things. You're not, those are still beautiful. Yes. Those are all important. Um, but is there something that we're missing in that too? And, Mm -hmm. um, how do we, how do we, uh, retain, how do we retain the, the profound quality of a practice and make it available to the masses as well? Mm. Well, one, one special thing that, um, I have in store on this particular episode is that I will include a sample of one of your recent sound baths mm-hmm. um, that you've provided and thank you for providing that so that people can just have a very you know brief experience of what it might be like to go through some type of sound bath. I would love for you to just talk a little bit about how people can find you and what's coming up that you're really excited about that people can come attend and, and have a way to experience um, what you've been sharing about. You bet. Yeah. So um, our company is called Zenso Balance. And if you'd like to find us online, zensobalance.com and backslash events, and that will let you know kind of where we are. Basically, uh, we do travel some. Uh, last summer, we were up in Northern California, all the way up to uh, Shasta County, Redding area, and then back down to kind of Santa Cruz, Benicia, Bay Area kind of um, doing events. But most of the things that we're doing are based here in San uh, San Diego. um, And uh, we partner with a variety of studios. So zensobalance.com backslash events will let you know of the upcoming things that are taking place. You know, as the end of the year wraps up, uh, there are just a couple events left for 2019. But uh, me and my business partner, Jenny Dawson, are, um, you know, have already began the process of uh, strategic planning for 2020 and are slowly um, placing those events online. I think the thing that you're going to see uh, more from us is uh, our more trainings. Um, So we'll continue to do the events. We basically have two types of events. We have a sound meditation uh, or a sound bath, which would just be the experience of sound. And then the second experience we do is we tie sound with a yin practice. So um, in which we pair the sound with the shapes or the poses. So um, one of our popular ones, just as a way of example, is a um, uh, yin yoga or chakra balance, yin yoga and sound healing, where we have a shape or a pose for each um, chakra. So there are seven shapes and then we pair music for each of those shapes to help facilitate you enter entering more deeply into that shape. And so that's a two hour experience and people go, Oh, two hours is that, that seems like a long time. It goes super fast. Um, and, oh my gosh, uh, it goes so fast. It, it feels does. like five minutes. <laughs> it does. It goes very fast. So those are kind of the two primary experiences that we do. One of the things that uh, are a couple of things that we're really introducing for 2020. One will be more trainings. So uh, Jenny is um, been uh, training with Paul Grilly, who's the founder of Yin Yoga as well as Joe Barnett. And so she'll be doing more Yin trainings, actually talking about, um, you know, uh, 
um, diving more deeply into the practice of Yen, and then also for teacher training, uh, doing a 25-hour training where she is training teachers who would like to teach Yen. Um, and then I will also be doing that as it relates to sound. So doing sound healing immersions where we're kind of just, just scratching the surface of understanding sound, what a bowl is, how to play a crystal bowl, and so forth. And then um, I'll also be doing a 25-hour training that kind of takes you into a little bit more depth of the science, and then also kind of an exploration of the instruments so that you know, okay, these are the categories of instruments. This is how you would kind of a, uh, play them like a light tutorial. Um, and then maybe just a little bit of sequencing, how you would actually put a sound bath together. And in both Jenny's experience or expression and in my expression, those 25 hour are really meant for people that want to kind of take the, the discipline, either yin or sound, and they're teaching it themselves. It could be that they're, you know, diving into it and they just want to have a greater capacity, uh, right? I mean, people do 200-hour yoga certifications and they never teach a yoga class, but they just want to deepen their practice. So that, sure. there's, that, there's that possibility as well. And then the other thing that we're shooting for for 2020-hour retreats, um, really wanting to to create more space so that we can explore some of these intersections of an asana practice like yin, of a meditation practice like sound, and then kind of overlay it with some of those deeper um, life type questions. So uh, I, I love Brene Brown. I love um, the framework that she uses of a wholehearted life. And I think um, it's one that's really helpful to understand all of this. And so we talk a lot about um, that all of this would lead itself to a wholehearted life. So in the practicing of uh, a body um, expression like again, and then in the use of sound, you are coming to this place of recognizing uh, um, the capacity to have courage to own your story, whatever that story may be, to have compassion on yourself in the midst of that story, because sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. And then we translate that compassion and we give it to others because sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. You know, we're all, we're all uh, uh, works in process, right? And then right. the last is realizing that we don't do this journey alone. So we, we balance this in community. And by community, I mean, once again, not uh, an enmeshment. We're not, we don't lose the particularity of the individual. It really is a, an individuated self where the individual can be um, particularly the individual, but as a member of the larger whole. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that's it. So there's courage to own the story. There's compassion for your story wherever you are on that journey. And then there's connection. There's this deep realization that I don't live this life void. Yes, it oscillates between solitude and oscillates between time of community, but uh, there, there is both. There's need for solitude and then there's need for community. And so that's really the heart of those retreats is that we would begin diving deep in that. Sometimes that will look through the lens of the chakra uh, theory and answering those questions like we talked about that Eastern body, Western mind. Um, but those are really what's on the, that's on the landscape for 2020. And then privates as well, um, increasing more and more privates. Um, and those private sessions are 60-minute sessions. They can be longer. Um, they're typically for smaller groups. However, we've done privates for up to 18, um, you know, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. So a lot of times it's just the opportunity to do more tailored experiences for the group. Um, I would love to do more of the second category of sound healing, which is sound therapy, where you're actually working individually with someone in the energetic realm or in the energetic world. And this is kind of where I almost am a hybrid, where I'm blending a little bit. So I take um, 
my history as a spiritual director with the use of sound. And there's almost kind of this conversation of asking question because sound is more than an auditory experience. It's a vibratory experience. Where do you feel sound? So once we identify where we're feeling sound, is that place a place of harmony or disharmony and then beginning to work with the individual kind of like reiki if you will but more conversation based and utilizing sound as the modality to bring about harmony or to bring about an aha um and um and i would love to do more of that in 2020 and um and hopefully that will that will uh, provide itself an opportunity to do that well, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you sir <laughs> exactly most certainly <laughs> There is so much opportunity for people who are interested to experience these therapeutic experiences, um, whether that is just simply through listening to it online or just going to a class or, or really deep diving, like you said, in that kind of community um, retreat environment. So mm-hmm. I'm, I really encourage anybody who's listening, if you are new to sound healing or, or new to are interested in kind of exploring a lot of the topics that we've discussed today to, to reach out to Mark. Um, he is obviously a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and love. And um, I hope that, I hope that those people can find you and have really great experiences working with you. Yeah, thanks, Britta. And I love being with you today. Thank you so much. Uh, it's such a gift to, uh, to have a, a conversation. I miss our times um, of being able to do that more frequently, but uh, today's been a, a real gift. So thank you. 